You're listening to the micro version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Fuck, Mary kill. You know the game, although it's really more of a thought experiment than a game. Or maybe it's more of a personality test than a thought experiment. Anyway, fuck, marry, kill. Someone names three people, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and you have to pick which one you would fuck, which one you would marry, and which one you would kill. Bill, Jeff, Elon. I mean, obviously. Anyway, late one night, I was tweeting in bed on my Helix mattress, which is also good for tweeting, and I tweeted, fuck, marry, kill, but you can only name one person, Go. Lots of responses to that tweet, lots of quote tweets, and a little outrage because one or two people named Ivanka Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and then a little more outrage as those got retweeted, and yeah, so I decided to delete that tweet before it went viral because I was going to bed, and I didn't want to wake up the next morning to discover that I was the main character that day on Twitter. The small amount of outrage my tweet generated before I deleted it and went to sleep, this little outrage nightcap, it seemed weird to me because there are lots of fuck, marry, kill tweets all over Twitter that name three people, and they're not met with any outrage. It's fine with the internet if you want to play fuck, marry, kill and name three people, but if you name just one person, it's, quote, creepy and, quote, disturbing and, quote, what the fuck is wrong with you, Dan? Nothing is wrong with me. If anything, my version of fuck, marry, kill is less creepy and less disturbing and less wrong than all those three-person versions that garner no objections. There's just one victim in my version. One person winds up dead. But in all the other versions of fuck, marry, kill out there, one person winds up dead, one person gets fucked by a murderer, and one person winds up married to a murderer. Three victims. How is that not worse? Only one of my followers got the right answer, the answer I was looking for, and that was novelist Ayelet Waldman, who named her husband Michael Chabon as the person she would fuck, marry, and kill. That's what marriage is, folks. You meet someone, you fuck, then you marry them, and then you spend the rest of your life suppressing the urge to kill that person. And the person who fucked you and married you, they want to kill you too. Not all the time. Sometimes Waldman gets it. Others did not. So, yeah. I'm glad I deleted that tweet, even if my chances of becoming the main character on Twitter the next day were small, I didn't want to risk it. Madison Cawthorn, on the other hand, got to be the main character on Twitter twice in the last couple of weeks. He did a podcast where he talked about elderly Republican members of Congress inviting him to coke-fueled orgies. Madison, in a tight black t-shirt showing off his biceps, his baseball hat on backwards in the manly style, he professed to be shocked, shocked by the sexual perversity he'd found when he got to Washington. And just when Madison's orgies were fading from the news, Politico published photos of Madison Cawthorn last Friday, famously Butch Madison, famously Manly Madison, Politico published photos of Madison Cawthorn in lingerie. This was just a few days after the New York Times published a trend piece in their style section about men wearing lingerie. I don't have much to say about this trend, except that if right-wing Republicans in North Carolina are doing it, it's already over. Oh, and the Madison and lingerie story broke the same week Cawthorn tweeted, there's only one God and only two genders. 
There were only two photos of Madison in lingerie as well. And he's clearly at some sort of party. He's surrounded by women who are embracing him and smiling and laughing. These weren't pics he took in private to share on Tinder or Grindr. They weren't sexts. So they don't tell us anything about what Madison is into or who Madison is. They don't complicate our picture of Madison or they don't queer that picture, as the queer theorists might say. Madison Cawthorn is still a straight white Republican asshole who was accused by dozens of women at his college of sexual harassment and assault, and then Republicans elected him to Congress. But I got to say, in one of the photos, Madison's looking into the camera and pretending to touch his right nipple through his black lacy bra, and there is this faraway, dreamy, wistful look in his eyes. Now, usually when you see a photo of Madison Cawthorn looking into a camera, What you see is fear and panic. It's the panic of someone who knows he's lying and knows he's in over his head and who's worried he won't get away with this grift forever. But in that lingerie photo, I don't want to read too much into it. Maybe Madison Cawthorn was just high or drunk. But for once, there's something going on behind those big blue eyes of his that isn't panic or treason or overcompensation. He looks unclenched for a second. He looks unguarded. He looks for once at home in his body. Now, I'm not saying Madison Cawthorn is trans or that Madison Cawthorn's a cross-dresser. I don't think he was getting any specific sort of thrill out of wearing that lingerie. No gender euphoria. I don't think that lacy black bra made his dick hard. No, what I see when I look at that photo is a prisoner gazing wistfully through the bars of his cell. The brand of aggressive, gun-toting, lib-owning, ball-tanning masculinity Madison is usually performing, the show Cawthorn puts on most of the time, or all of the time, out there firing his assault rival, beating up trees, calling for violence against his political opponents, the baseball hat on backward thing, and his carefully modulated voice, the bro-speak intonations. To keep that shit up, Every day, every waking moment, wherever there's a constituent or a camera around, and cameras are everywhere these days, that shit is exhausting. That kind of amped up performative masculinity, it's a nightmare for everybody, but it is a prison for guys like Madison Cawthorn. And you can see it in his eyes, that little glimpse he gets of freedom, freed, if only for a moment, from the man he's doomed to pretend he is. All right, quickly circling back to the marrying theme before we start the show. Sometimes I get wedding questions. I don't mind them. Always happy to give wedding advice to people who are about to marry. Anyway, a little advice on what not to do at your wedding. First, don't kill the person you just married. Please don't actually fuck, marry, and kill anyone. Fuck and marry, yes. Kill, no. And please don't do what Danya Glennie did at her wedding in Florida. Shortly after being served meatballs, Caesar salad, and bread with olive oil, guests at Danya's wedding started feeling dizzy. Some started throwing up. One had a psychotic episode and wound up in medical restraints in a hospital. Because Danya and her caterer, Jocelyn Bryant, unbeknownst to the groom, it seems, laced the food that was served at the reception with pot. Lots and lots of pot. To add insult to injury, the cater waiters knew, they were warned, but the guests didn't know and weren't warned. It was actually one of the waiters who tipped off a guest who then tipped off the cops. The guest started to feel strange, said something to the waiter, and the waiter said, well, there's cannabis in the food. 
truly a wedding to remember. Not that anyone who was there can remember it. Along with her caterer, Danya has been charged with food tampering and a drug offense. So it turns out Danya was playing her own game. Fuck, marry, dose, and go to jail. Okay, coming up on the micro and magnum versions of the Savage Lovecast this week, I chatted with Christine Emba, author of Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, and it was indeed provocative. We had an interesting, complicated conversation about her critique of sex positivity and consent culture. The first part of our conversation is on the micro free version of the show, and the entire conversation can be heard on the magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. Twice as long, more questions, no ads, which you can subscribe to at savage.love. Also, a quick programming note before we begin. We talked recently on a couple of episodes about unsolicited dick pics. It occurred to me that I should invite listeners who've sent unsolicited dick pics to call in and tell us why you do it or did it. I'd like to think that listeners of my show don't send unsolicited dick pics anymore. Still, we never hear from the guys who engage in this behavior. We know you're out there. If you're brave enough, take a couple of minutes to explain yourself, why you did it and why you stopped, or why you're doing it and haven't stopped yet. Just use the voice memo app on your phone and send it to us via voicemail at savagelovecast.com, or you can call 206 302 2064 and leave us a message. We will play the most interesting calls from the most interesting unsolicited dick pic senders on an upcoming show. All right, let's get to it. Support for today's show, support we are very grateful for, comes from Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk in your own home, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just click, print, mail, and you are done. It could not be easier. And right now, use Savage for this special offer. Includes up to 55 bucks worth of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Do not wait. Go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Savage. That's stamps.com. Enter S-A-V-A-G-E. This episode is brought to you by Allform, premium customizable sofas and chairs shipped right to your door. For 20% off your perfect sofa, go to allform.com slash savage. This episode of the Savage Lovecast is brought to you by Talkspace, online therapy that makes it easy to get extra mental health support. For $100 off your first month, go to Talkspace.com and use the offer code SAVAGE. Hi, Dan. This is a 25-year-old from Los Angeles. I am calling um, because I've been casually dating for a while, and I met someone I kind of really liked. And after a little bit of talking, we met up once, and, you know, we both talked about possibly meeting again. And... He he told me after a few days of talking pretty consistently that he wants to explore something with somebody. I didn't know if it was still open or what his deal was. And he told me he would be open to talking, but um, meeting up will be a while, which is so okay. But I've been going out with many people and I just can't get him out of my head. I mean, honestly, I've just been trying to go and move on from it. But I find myself when I'm like <laughs> with somebody and like talking with them and out on a date with somebody, my mind just is kind of like thinking about him. And I just don't know what to do. I even tried to ask him a little bit about traveling and he was so nice and everything and was very much like, okay, well, if things change, I'll let you know. But 
I'm not waiting around from him. I'm not doing anything like that. I just don't know how to get him off my mind because this person isn't available. He even um, deleted the app we met on and is obviously not initiating conversations for obvious reasons. I don't know how to go and get this off my mind and I'm I'm definitely not going to reach out again. I don't know. I just can't stop thinking about him. You're pining for the one who got away because also you're pining for the one who rejected you, who had a choice between you and some other person and chose to pursue things with that other person. And you're pining for him because in your imagination, the relationship you could have had with him if he had chosen you, which he did not, and I think you need to concentrate on that a little bit, is perfect compared to the imperfect guys who are sitting across from you at dinner. This guy met up with you once. You were into him. You liked him. You had a good rapport when you were texting with him and swapping messages with him. And so you began to, some part of your brain began to fantasize about a future with this guy that was cut short, that fantasy version of the relationship you could have had with him, as opposed to in reality, the imperfect, messy, human, fucked up relationship you would have had with him if he'd been open to dating you, which he was not. Yeah, that is what you're thinking about. You're really not thinking about him. You're contrasting an idea, a fantasy of perfection with the, you know, other guys that you're hanging out with, other guys that you're dating, other guys that you're meeting up with. What do you do about that? You know this is not a healthy trap you're in. You know that you need to stop thinking about this guy. Well, when we tell ourselves stop thinking about X, it's very hard to think about X. There's that old joke, don't think of an elephant. And of course, now you can think of nothing else but elephants. <sighs> I would encourage you not to torture yourself like that. Don't yell at yourself to stop thinking about him. Just tell yourself what it is that you're actually thinking about, which is not him, but the possibility that he represented. Possibility of a good, lasting, solid relationship with a guy that you were into who was smart and funny and willing and able to engage. And you don't know, you can't know the reasons why he chose someone else. For all you know, he's already married to that someone else. You know actually very little about him and you're filling in the rest of the story with the fantasy version of him and the relationship you could have with him. So just keep telling yourself, it's not him, it's this fantasy. And keep dating other guys. And a guy is going to come along, keep seeing other guys, a guy is going to come along who does the same thing for you that he did. You're going to meet a guy that you really like, that you have a good rapport with, and that as you're sitting there on the first or second date, you can imagine something good happening here, that there may be you know, a, a real possibility with this guy for something lasting and loving and committed for what you want out of a relationship. And then that guy is going to supplant this guy in your imagination. And who knows, that guy may choose you. You may choose him. That guy may want to pursue things with you. And you may wind up in a relationship, not a fantasy relationship, not anything perfect. There is nothing perfect, but in a real relationship with someone that you can have real complicated, interesting, fucked up, loving, sometimes hating, bond with. And you will forget about Mr. Possibility, Mr. Perfect Fantasy. Hey, Dan, 30-year-old gay guy 
in the big west coast city here. I have this friend, he's 40. We've hooked up in the past, but it's just platonic now. Although I know he still wants to have sex, I'm just not interested in him like that. And my point is just that our relationship has been sexual in the past. So last night, we're at the bar with some friends, and they're talking about guys they've hooked up with and showing each other pictures from their grinder chats, etc. And he starts telling me about this guy he hooked up with, and he opens the media folder of their chat in WhatsApp, and I see a picture of me at the nude beach from last year. In the picture, I'm looking down at my phone, and it's my entire body, including my face, although I am wearing sunglasses. So I'm like, what the fuck? And he says that this guy he's chatting with saw me in one of his Instagram stories, said I was cute, asked who I was, and somehow that leads to him sending a naked picture of me that I didn't even know he has. So last summer when that picture was taken, I asked him to take a picture of me using my phone so I could send it to a guy I was interested in. And the picture I ended up sending had a banana emoji over my dick. So I've never sent that picture unedited to anyone. I've never sent a fully nude picture of myself, including my face to anyone, ever. And so I asked him, I was like, why do you have a naked picture of me? And first he tries to say, I asked him to take the picture. And it's like, well, yes, but with my phone, I gave you my phone to take the picture. And so then he says, well, you sent it to me. No, I never would send that to you. And then he says, well, it's not a big deal because you send naked pictures on Grindr all the time. And it's like, well, yeah, but not of my entire body, including my face. So I tell him to delete the picture. He deletes it from the media folder in their chat but supposedly can't find the original on his phone. Plus, it's still in the chat, so he can just download it from there. It's super awkward leaving the bar that night because I walk home with a mutual friend, and he's literally holding on my arm saying, you know, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Please don't tell her. Um, he texts me a bunch afterwards saying, please don't tell her. I'm sorry. Um, but he seems more concerned with me telling her because then she's going to tell everyone and everyone's going to know about this and it makes him look bad. So Dan, I don't know how to proceed. I don't know how many guys he's sent this picture to that he's had for a year now. There's no way for me to make sure he deletes every copy. I'm not concerned about professional consequences or anything because I know there's a million naked pictures out there, but it just feels really gross knowing that he's been holding onto this picture that I didn't know he took and sending it to random people. So Dan, is it even possible to be friends with someone after something like this happens? What would he need to do to make the situation right? What would you do? What would I do? I would do what you did. I would tell my friend that I was angry and I would make him delete the photographs in front of me all the while knowing that the photo still exists in chat and it might be lurking somewhere else on his phone. And when you delete a picture, it doesn't automatically delete it. Sometimes goes into deleted photos file where it can be recovered. Of course it can be deleted from deleted photos and then it's gone forever, but then you have to hover over someone to make sure that they do that. Yeah. There's not much that you can do here except not hang out with this guy anymore. Certainly not go to nude beaches with this guy anymore. He was engaged in a particularly shitty, pernicious kind of 
sex clout chasing where he was sending around nude photos of you and probably nude photos of other guys that he slept with to randos on Grinder to say, hey, look at the hot ass I can get. Look at the big dicks I can pull. And yeah, that's just a, a, a shitty thing to do. And you shouldn't be sending out or forwarding nude photos of people that you've slept with or photos of that people have shared with you without the consent of the person in that photo. And there are some people, some guys, a lot of gay guys, they don't care who sees their dick uh, attached, you know, attached to their face, not their dick's attached to face. You know what I mean? A pic with a face and a dick in it. Some guys don't care. Some guys want their nude pics spread far and wide. You aren't one of those guys. And he shouldn't, no one should just assume someone would be okay with something like this. The fact that he didn't ask whether you would be okay with this is an indication that he knew that you likely wouldn't be okay with it. <sighs> yeah. I don't know how a friendship survives, you know, a, a neurotic friendship. You're not interested in him anymore. Sexually. You've hooked up a few times. He's still interested in you sexually and is bragging about you sexually about having, been with you, showing you off to other guys that he's interested in sexually. I don't know how a friendship survives that kind of use, misuse, that kind of uh, abuse of your trust. Yeah. When you're laying with somebody at a nude beach these days and the days of cell phones and ubiquitous cameras uh, and photos are being taken, there's a degree of trust implicit in that moment that he's not going to snap a photo on his own phone, that he's not going to forward the photo he took on your phone to himself before he hands your phone back to you. And then if he's in possession of those photos, cause you guys were flirting on grinder, wherever you met the first time, he's not going to save archive and then attempt to leverage your nudes in an effort to get into some other dude's pants. Yeah. I don't think you should be friends. I don't think you're going to be able to be friends with this guy going forward. I don't think this is something that you can bury. There's not much more that you can do about it, which is going to make any interaction you have with him feel frustrating that you're going to be with him. You're going to try to, you know, stuff it down the memory hole, but it's going to be present that you're just not safe with him. Not that you're going to be hauling your dick out at brunch or something and he'll get to get another picture of it, but that you just know that he sees you not as a person whose feelings he has to take into consideration, not as a friend, but as an object, as a nude pick that he can use, that he can toss around on the internet, send to other guys on grinder for clout and to puff himself up in their eyes. Yeah. Friendship over. Everybody talks about doing their spring cleaning around this time of year, finally getting some decluttering done or going in for a deep clean. But spring is also such a good time to take care of your mental health in a similar way. And that's why we here at the Lovecast recommend Talkspace. When you're feeling overwhelmed, it's really easy to put off getting help. And just finding a therapist and traveling to their office is a huge lift if you're already struggling. With Talkspace, they make it easy to find a licensed therapist you click with and to get set up for regular sessions all on your phone or computer. Taking the first step toward getting help can be scary, but no matter where you are in your mental health journey, talking to a therapist who's trained to help makes a huge difference. Once you match with one of their licensed therapists, you can message them anytime through the app. 
or schedule a live session if you need some FaceTime. With 24-7 text, audio, and video messaging, Talkspace lets you talk to a licensed therapist without needing an appointment. They have thousands of therapists across dozens of specialties. Once you match with your therapist, you can message with them anytime, anywhere. And it's private, secure, and most importantly, accessible. It's everything you love about therapy without the stuff that gets in the way. If thoughts and emotions are piling up, a fresh perspective can help you to feel better. Match with your dedicated therapist today at Talkspace.com and use promo code SAVAGE during sign-up to get $100 off your first month. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com, promo code SAVAGE. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old cis girl living in the Northeast. I'm literally driving back home right now from a second date with this girl. We get along really well. We click. We vibe like... I don't know. She's really cool. She's like this incredible artist, which is just so attractive to me. And we have so much in common. The only issue that I'm having right now, and I just need some perspective because I don't really know. I don't know if this is uh, something that's common or not. But I saw like from a deep internet dive that she is trans, which I'm totally fine with. I don't care one way or the other. She's or trans or whatever. I think she's super cool. She's really cute. I really like her. But I am concerned because she actually told me flat out tonight on our date that she is not transgender, which is not something that I asked. It was a piece of information that she sort of offered up in the context of our conversation. She definitely is trans. So I'm just not really sure. Like, is this a red flag that she's telling me lies, like she's being dishonest? Or is this just something that is common in uh, the trans experience? I should specify that she kind of went into a little more detail, like she's mentioned having period cramps when she was younger. Um, She's talked about, you know, just her experience as like being a woman growing up, which you know, she she is a woman. She has been a woman her whole life. I totally understand that and appreciate it. Honesty is something that I really, really value in myself and in the people I'm around. But then again, I don't know if this is a something that is really making her feel insecure. I don't want to look down on her for that. I'm sure there are going to be people out there listening who have a problem or take issue with the fact that you did this deep internet dive on this woman that you've been on a couple of dates with. Uh, I, I'm i not sure how I feel about that either, but it is a thing that people do. Sometimes people do it for their own protection. They want to know that the person that they've been on one or two dates with is the person that they claim to be. And so, yeah, with so many of us now having lived so much of our lives or all of our lives online and having left a footprint, Googling someone is a thing people do and maybe it's something we shouldn't do unless we have concerns or a worry that we're being played, but easy for people to condemn, but it is a thing that, yeah, almost all people do. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that would include some of the people who would condemn it or want to judge you for what you did. All right. It's understandable why some trans people wait before they disclose. You've only been on two dates with this woman. It's understandable that, you know, not all trans people feel safe being out as trans. And it can be particularly touchy with 
you know, someone that you're dating. This wasn't a hookup. I think it's in the best interest of trans people to disclose that they're trans to a casual hookup to protect themselves from winding up alone in a room with someone who is may, particularly if it's a cis man, have a violent reaction to having been with or, you know, getting with, hooking up with someone who's trans. But when it comes to dating, sometimes trans people really don't want to come out as trans until they know that they can trust you or that you're just someone that they can trust uh, and that they want to disclose to. They want to confide that in you. But that's different. Holding it back, waiting to come out as trans until you've been on six or seven dates or you've hung out some more, vibed some more. That's different than actively lying. I don't know why this woman that you're, you've been on a couple of dates with went to such lengths to actively lie to you about being cis when they're not. I have this weird double bank shot reverse flip uh, idea that maybe the trans thing was a lie. Maybe when she was younger, she claimed to be trans when she wasn't for some sort of clout in the communities that she, you know, in the you know circles that she moved through as an adolescent. You say this was a really deep dive. How many years ago was this? How old was she when she was out as trans? You know, some people are, you know, why would anyone claim to be trans when they're not and invite that kind of judgment and shame and, and you know, stigma onto themselves. But in some circles, there is a certain cultural cachet and clout. Clout's the word of the day. I don't know why I keep using the word clout today. To not being cishet or not being cis, you know, lesbian or gay in this instance. So it's within the realm of possibility that she's telling you the truth right now and whatever she was saying on whatever listserv you dug her up on from 10, 15 years ago, that that was the lie. But there's only one person who knows the truth here and it's her. You're either going to have to ask her straight up, tell her what you found, tell her you did what so many people do. You did a deep dive on the internet. You looked into her because you liked her and you're curious about her and you wanted to know her better. And also as you know, a woman out there dating in the world, you wanted to do your screw diligence and protect yourself. And you found this and you want to know why she felt she had to lie to you about this thing that she did not have to lie to you. If indeed it was a lie and yeah, all signs point toward likely a lie with the very slim possibility that cis is the truth and trans here is the lie. If you're looking to spruce up your home and it's time for a new sofa, I recommend you get yourself an all form sofa. It's the same company that made our Helix mattress. So we knew it was going to be good when we got an all form sofa and it was with all form. You can customize a sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. You pick your fabric and it's spill stain and scratch resistant. You pick the sofa color, the color of the legs, sofa size, and the shape to make sure it's perfect for you and your home. They also have armchairs and love seats. It's actually a love seat that we got all the way up to an eight seat sectional for everyone in your polycule. So there is somewhere for everyone to park it. And you can always start small and buy more seats later on. If you want your all form sofa to grow and change with you and your polycule and your family when you move. 
All Form sofas are also delivered directly to your home with fast, free shipping. All Form takes just three to seven days to arrive in the mail, and you can assemble it yourself in just a few minutes. No tools needed. Or, like me, you can have Nancy swing by and do it. She said it was easy. We have an All Form love seat. It's actually here in our offices. It's a cool retro teal color, and it fits perfectly in our studio and looks great. And sometimes I take a little nap on that tiny little love seat. I curl up in the fetal position and it is so comfortable. You also get a hundred days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. They even offer a forever warranty, literally forever. To find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash savage. Let them know the Lovecast sent you allform.com slash savage. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for my listeners at allform.com slash savage. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Christine Emba. She's a columnist for the Washington Post and author of the new book, Rethinking Sex. Hey, Christine, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I got to say, I loved your book. I hated your book, which I think was the goal. The subtitle is uh, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. And I was provoked. And at times I felt implicated, maybe in a lot of bad sex. Let's start with consent. You write a lot about consent. You write, consent does not make sex physically, emotionally, or psychologically safe. And an attitude of uncritical sex positivity neglects this fact. You've been identified as one of the writers which in an emerging, what they're calling sex negativity movement. Can you talk about that? Let's talk about consent, but let's talk about whether you're comfortable with that moniker, the sex negative writer. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good question. And thanks for bringing that up. I do not identify as a sex negative writer. Um, I am very in favor of sex and good sex specifically. I think what I am though is a critic of uncritical sex positivity, of the idea that being sex positive means that you shouldn't ask any questions about whether some acts are better than others, whether some ways of treating people are better than others, whether we need a higher standard, say, than just the bare minimum of consent. I'm worried sometimes that, you know, in our push to say that we're sex positive, that we're, you know, not judgmental, that we're allowing everybody to do their thing, that we neglect to address situations in which people are really harmed, uh, in which limits could actually be helpful, in which maybe consent is given, but something very wrong is still happening. Let's talk about where I felt implicated. You know, I have for years, uh, you know, advocated for consent. I've been writing about sex for so long that I was there for no means no, and then there for yes means yes. And then therefore, yes, meaning yes isn't enough. You need enthusiastic consent and enthusiastic and then ongoing consent. You argue in the book that our conversation about consent, the way we've centered consent, it isn't protecting everyone or enough people from winding up in situations having sex that they may have consented to but feel bad about afterwards. How do we prevent that, people feeling bad about sex they consented to afterwards by having a new conversation about consent? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, first of all, I think we have to admit, right, that people will get hurt when they're in romantic relationships, when they're having sexual encounters. That's kind of the nature of the human experience. You can't avoid being hurt. 
that said, I do think that we, you know, have to talk more about how consent is a floor for sexual encounters. It's not a ceiling. When we talk about consent, even sort of the the myriad different definitions, ever-evolving definitions of consent that you describe, you know, no means no, yes means yes, affirmative, enthusiastic, we're still often framing the question as an almost a goalpost, right? Like, did I get the right kind of consent so that I can have the sex that I want to have without it being actively criminal? Mm -hmm. That's a really low bar. (laughs) I'm suggesting that we should want more from our sexual relationships than, than not being actively an assault. And so I think that consent, just focusing on consent, doesn't ask people to consider the bigger questions of sort of morals and ethics. Is the sex that I'm having actually good for my partner? Am I actually thinking about them? Um, Am I, you know, creating something good that we can both, you know, look back on and maybe regret, maybe not feel the best about, but at least feel like we were being cared for in that encounter? One of the things that comes up in the book a lot is, I don't want to describe it as transactional, but like the relationships between men and women and what men want out of sex and what women want out of sex. And I have to, you know, I'm a gay man. I give a lot of sex advice to straight people, straight men, straight women. I have to be conscious at all times of that fact. And I wasn't 30 years ago as conscious of the differentials in power and expectations as I think I am now. And you know, one of the things that I'm really conscious of that I'm always talking to straight guys about is that you may not think you're being scary, but a woman brings to being alone in a room with a man millennia of sexual violence that's directed at women, a kind of sexual terrorism. And she may be afraid of you, whether you intend her to be or not. And you have to make an extra effort to make sure that that woman isn't giving you a yes, isn't consenting under duress you may not be consciously aware of or be able to perceive because of your being a male, right? Even if a guy does that though, like the standard, you know, I I read your book and like you talk to so many people who feel bad after the fact about the sex that they had. And it just feels like under that standard, none of us should have sex ever because the chance that someone might feel bad about the sex they had with us, even if it was consensual or seemingly enthusiastic consent at the time, that someone could feel bad about it later just feels like a bar. You know, you talk about the consent bar being too low if it's just consent. That seems like a bar that's almost impossibly high. How do you control where no one ever feeling bad about the choices that they made to be with you sexually? Yeah, that's it's a really complicated question, but I think there are two parts to it. First, I guess another critique of consent is that, you know, when you say that you have to get consent and that's kind of the only thing you need to think about, it doesn't ask people to think about these power dynamics. Um, it doesn't make until you're getting those part of the conversation. And so in the book, I quote this story from the anthropologist David Graeber. And he talked about how in a high school classroom, guys and girls were asked to write sort of a story about what a day would look like from the viewpoint of the opposite sex. And so female students were able to write these really long, detailed essays about what a day might look like through the eyes of their male colleagues, like a male student. Mm-hmm. And then boys just couldn't come up with anything at all, (laughs) or sometimes even just refuse the assignment. They were so unused to thinking of the world through female eyes. 
Um, and that's like in high school, you know, that's really young kids and mm-hmm. that sort of differential and how, how much understanding we have about how the other sex thinks is really visible when it comes to sex. So that's one thing. And I think that's a problem of education and empathy. But then the other question you ask, you know, is trying to prevent our partners from regretting the sex they have with us too high a bar? Well, not when you put it that way. (laughs) Certainly, you know, we should all make an effort uh, at all times to, you know, do everything we can to make sure that people we're having sex with want to have sex with us and aren't going to come to regret it. It's just how do you control for that if after the fact someone who consented and at the time consented enthusiastically and then later on... Mm -hmm. You know, I guess this is like me tiptoeing up to shitty old arguments about like regret and, you know, isn't an indictment of the person that you had sex with. If you come to regret what you wanted to do or what you agreed to do, it just feels like Mm -hmm. that is, that makes rapists of us all in the end and not just men. Yeah. So I think that you, I mean, you can't control another person's feelings. You can't ensure that they'll feel good about any encounter that you've had with them. But I think that having a higher standard than just consent could help us on the way there. So in the book, I advocate for a higher standard that I define as willing the good of the other, which is, you know, based on Aristotle by way of Thomas Aquinas. And the idea is that in a sexual encounter, we're doing more than consent. You should be actively sort of empathizing with the other person actively trying to make their encounter as good as you would want your own. And if you don't feel like you're able to do that, whether your emotional state, you don't know enough about your partner, you don't really have an understanding of what the good is in some way, then restraint is probably the better option. I read this thing in your book, Can We Not Love Each Other for a Single Day? And yeah, I loved that. I love that way of putting it. I've always said, you know, my campsite rule, try to leave people in better shape than you found them. And also I'm always hammering away at this concept of like a successful short-term relationship. We talk all the time about Mm -hmm. successful LTRs, but most of our relationships are going to be short-term and we want those to be successes too. And if people limp away from an evening or a weekend or a month or a year with you feeling diminished and, you know, filled with regret, if they can't remember anything about the encounter, that is a positive for them going forward. You haven't left them in better shape than you found them. I would love if everyone approached every interaction, even if it was just even an anonymous hookup with that idea of, can we not love each other for a single day? Because we can. Right. It's actually not that hard. It does implicate us though. And, you know, some responsibility for the other person, like it becomes our job to be empathetic and think of the other. And it means decentering our own desires as the most important thing. It means, you know, thinking of the other person as important too. And to be clear, like this, you know, this won't solve every problem. Obviously, there will still be areas where there are mistakes where people have regrets. But as so many women and men told me in interviews, you know, what I want from an encounter is just like empathy, care, like actually being listened to. Mm-hmm. And even if we're just trying to do that and probably failing because we aren't perfect, but even trying to do that is a step a, a step far further from where a lot of relationships are now. Christine Emba, author of the new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. I was certainly provoked. It was a wonderful and bracing read. Uh, and thank you so much for writing it. And thank you for coming on the show and talking about it.
Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed talking to you too. Christine Emba and I continued our conversation and we spired a little bit. That extended conversation with Christine Emba is on the Magnum version of this week's show. Subscribe to the Magnum Savage Lovecast. Twice as long, no ads, support the show. Also additional other bonus content, including our new S&P Sex and Politics Conversations. Get all that and more, including more Christine Emba in this week's Savage Lovecast by subscribing today at savage.love. If you've got a small business, inflation isn't doing you any favors right now. It is harder than ever to stay profitable. Now, if you're worried about profits and you're looking for a way to cut costs, mailing and shipping is a great place to start. Simply use stamps.com to mail and ship and get access to exclusive discounts and great rates on shipping from USPS and UPS. If you aren't already using stamps.com to mail and ship and get access to exclusive discounts and great rates on shipping from USPS and UPS, now is the time to start. This is an easy way to keep more of your money in your pocket. Stamps.com saves you time, saves you money, saves you stress. For more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable to over 1 million businesses. Stamps.com gives you access to all the post office and UPS shipping services you might need right from your computer, and you get discounts. You can't get anywhere else, like up to 30% off USPS rates and 86% off UPS No matter what business you're in, Stamps.com can help you save on shipping. Whether you're an office sending invoices, an Etsy shop sending your products out, or a warehouse shipping out truckloads of orders, Stamps.com is the mailing and shipping solution for you. Sell from multiple stores? No problem. Stamps.com seamlessly works with Shopify, Amazon, Etsy, eBay, and more. All you need is your regular computer and your printer, no special supplies or equipment, You will be up and running in minutes printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send it. Start mailing and shipping with stamps.com and keep more money in your pocket every day. Sign up with promo code SAVAGE, S-A-V-A-G-E, for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter the code SAVAGE. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Youth. 40-year-old cis bisexual male here in the Pacific Northwest, and I have a question about polyamory and kids. My assigned female at birth wife and I are in a polyamorous relationship, a triad, with another uh, bisexual male. Um, we're really happy, and it's it's been going on about six months now, and I've listened to the, the podcast enough to know that when you oftentimes advise people uh, in new relationships to wait to introduce their partner to their children because of the the risk of, of attachment and and losing that partner if, if they if they leave the child's life could be traumatic and I'm a strong proponent of that. Um, however, in our current situation, I'm concerned that our daughter, who's nine years old, will either see or hear something or has already seen or heard something, you know, such as cuddling or conversations about our situation, and that she would not understand uh, what she is seeing, perhaps think that mommy or daddy is, is cheating or that something is going on that she needs to keep a secret or feel shame about. So my wife and I are currently considering discussing with her Um, our situation so that we could get out in front of the message and explain 
that it's, you know, a loving situation between adults and there's nothing to be ashamed of and nothing that she needs to be afraid of and that everyone is, is aware of what's going on and approving. But I, I didn't know because it's, it's only been six months and I know it seems like normally you would say that this is, is too early and I, and I, and I get that. But I wanted your advice because I haven't heard this question really taken from a polyamorous perspective where the additional partner isn't really an attachment figure in the child's life and where there could be confusion around the situation and things that the child sees or hears. I'd look forward to hearing what you or your listeners think. You say that you have concerns that your daughter might see or hear something such as cuddling or conversations about the situation you're in. And then you also say that your other partner, the other bi male in your lives, isn't really an attachment figure in your child's life. So my question to you would be, what's the cuddling situation? Are you cuddling with your wife alone and discussing the other partner? Or is your other partner a part of that cuddle puddle? Is he there in your house where your daughter is? And a part of these conversations. And if he is in your house and a part of these conversations or a part of these cuddle puddles, how have you introduced him already to your daughter? Who does she understand him to be? And how has he managed over the last six months to avoid becoming a sort of attachment figure in your daughter's life? Or potentially that, you know, the potential that your daughter's already become attached to him. If he's someone that you see outside the house, if he's not someone who spends the night, if he's not someone whose presence is any different in your house in the presence of other friends who may drop by and hang out with mom and dad while your daughter's around, and I assume at nine years old and you and your wife still being together and co-parenting that your daughter is always around, you may not need to do any explaining. But if there is intimacy, if after your daughter goes to bed, the three of you are hanging out, you're having conversations about your polyamorous relationship, if you're cuddling on the sofa, all three of you together, or if you're having sex and if he's sometimes over and having sex when you're alone in the house with your daughter or your wife's alone in the house with the daughter and he's there and they have sex. Yeah. I don't think nine years old, I'm sure I'd get banned in Florida for saying this. I don't think nine years old is too soon to have a conversation with your daughter about what's actually going on an age appropriate conversation with your daughter about what's going on because you don't want to burden her. You know, if she's overheard something, if she's walked into a room and seen something and turn around and walk back out of that room without any of the three of you realizing that she came into the room, I'm talking about sex, talking about the three of you on the couch, obviously being very intimate, cuddling, watching television. And she walks in behind the couch, sees this cuddle puddle and turns around and walks out. You don't want her to start to feel insecure or to start to feel like, your relationship, yours and her mother's relationship is a lie or is in some sort of peril, particularly if she's witnessed or overheard intimacy, which could include sex when it's just you and he in the house or just him and your wife in the house. You know, the, the risk here is always, you know, I always want to balance my basically not quite ironclad. There are a lot of exceptions to this law, but running friends and family, but particularly close members of your family on a need to know basis. Does your daughter need to know this? Well, she wouldn't need to know it if this was something that only went on outside of the house. And this was something that you and your wife made an effort to only discuss with each other in explicit terms when you're 
out on a date night together, when your daughter's having a sleepover. But if he's being folded into your household in some way, if he's present in the house, if there's intimacy, yeah, you might want to get out in front of that, talk to your daughter, explain to her that mom and dad are good, mom and dad are solid, and this is a special person in our lives. And that sometimes married people date or fall in love with other people and still stay together. That might be important for your daughter to hear, even at, or especially at, nine years old. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Love to nap a bunch tweets. Hey, Savage Lovecast and Dan, did you mean bonding, not bound, when you mentioned other bonded shows on Netflix? Bound is that fabulous lesbian slash mob movie by the Wachowskis. Yes, that's a very good catch. Loves to nap a bunch. Indeed, I meant bonding the two-season Netflix show about a professional dominatrix in New York City who ropes her gay best friend into being her dungeon assistant. It was not good. Like, it was Fifty Shades of Grey bad. At least Fifty Shades of Grey, though, wasn't pretending to be an informed but humorous look at BDSM subcultures. Lark Star tweets, at school, I'm studying to become a teacher. We're discussing if teens should be taught about kink too. Is there a Savage Lovecast episode on this subject? There isn't, but there's going to be a moral panic about teens being taught about kink in school if you make the mistake of posting something about what you're doing right now or thinking about doing right now to TikTok. Of course, kink should be covered in a comprehensive sex education curriculum. Of course, it won't be. It never will be, not in the United States, which doesn't mean kids won't learn about kink or kinky kids won't find their way to kink. They just won't learn about it in sex set. They'll learn about it from porn, which is not ideal. Damn it, Ali tweets, taking a web seminar for my new job and they keep talking about PIV, personal identity verification. But after years of listening to the Savage Lovecast, my brain hears something very different. I feel you, damn it, Ali. Every time I hear a therapist recommend CBT to someone, my balls ache a little. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And thank you to everyone who posted to social media about the show last week. We really appreciate it. All right, on to something else we really appreciate, listener response calls. Hi, this is a comment for the guy in episode 808 whose partner doesn't really care about his orgasm. My partner, all of a sudden, like a year into our relationship, was kind of doing the same thing. After having so much great sex, it was like really shocking. And one time after sex where he came and I didn't, I just kind of snapped. And I was like, you know, I'm really sick of asking for my orgasm. And it really seemed to click with him. Like once I said something and said that asking for my orgasm was a problem, he seemed to understand. So I hope that helps, but it kind of sounds like this guy has some selfish stuff going on. Dan might be right. You might need to dump that motherfucker already. Can we all just get over being afraid of herpes already? Like, God, Dan, the number of times you've had to answer this question. Most everybody has herpes. If someone discloses it to you, that means that they are far more responsible and you are going to be safer with them than you will be with the randos who don't know and expose you or do know and willfully don't tell you. Don't discourage people from being honest. This is for the caller who can't find a guy that likes using her vibrator to get her off because, girl, you were looking at this problem all 
wrong. So my girlfriend is the same way. 99% of the time, the only way that she comes is with a toy. And laying there next to her and vibing her clit for a couple of minutes is, you know, fine. But tying her up, pulling that thing out, and telling her to be a good girl and not move is awesome. So instead of waiting for the sorting hat to spit out that one magical guy for you, just make it a game. Have him use it on you while you're bent over the kitchen sink. Or tie him to the bed and slap one of those suction cup dildos on his forehead. Just... Find a way to make it naughty and fun, and I guarantee you, you will have plenty of guys begging to come over and use that vibrator on you. All right, one last thing before we leave it. At a cafe on Mozstrasse in Berlin last week, I got up to leave and left my backpack sitting under a table right on the sidewalk. The person who'd been sitting next to me noticed and flagged me down, so I didn't wind up losing my computer that day. I, of course, thanked Juan in Berlin at that cafe on Mozstrasse as it happened, when it happened, when he saved me. And it turns out he's a listener and a fan, so I wanted to thank him again on the show, this show, that I would not have been able to record if it wasn't for him. Juan, thank you again. Thank you so, so much. All right, like my backpack on Mozstrasse, we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Bellingham, Washington and Bend, Oregon, Hump is sliding into your DMs this weekend and onto your screens. Then Hump is off to Denver, Philly and eight other cities throughout May. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets to a screening in a theater near you. Also, you can find streaming links at humpfilmfest.com. And Sack Lunch, my monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Magnum subscribers to the Savage Lovecast, is next Thursday, May 5th, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Mark your calendars now. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Christine Emba on Twitter at Christine Emba. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian. And me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.